Amen, Jesus. Thank you that we can come to you on your terms. We are to surrender all to you and we get everything in return. Thank you for your grace. Now would you speak through me and through all of us this morning. Prepare our hearts as we open the word of God and as we learn more about you. Remove me from the equation and may it be as if Jesus Christ himself were behind this pulpit speaking. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're going to begin talking about, as I finally promised we would, a catastrophic event. We're going to talk about the flood and more or less how God flooded the world. And so I want to test your memory this morning. Uh, yes, for some of us, it's, it's still too early to test your memory. Uh, the question is, for those to whom it applies, so some of you it does not apply, and we'll just uh, date ourselves here. Anybody born, now, say, before 1980? Raise your hands, okay? Okay, most of us here, okay. Where were you on May 18th, 1980? Federal Federal way. Now, if my memory serves me correctly, and there's a good chance it doesn't. But I was, I was an 11-year-old boy living in Clarkston, Michigan. Now, for those to whom this question applies, who were living in Washington State, this should not be too difficult to remember. Because on May 18, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. From an episode of A&E's Minute by Minute series from 2001 that profiled the May 18, 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, who was in here alive for this in Washington State? Show of hands. Okay. You weren't alive. Auburn, Federal Way, Seattle. You remember what you were doing when you heard the news? You were eating peeps. We know that. So, <laughs> what were you doing, Roberta? Uh huh. Okay. Anybody else want to share where they were or what you were doing when, it, when you found out? It was massive. Shannon. <laughs> oh, jeez. Well. Celebrate your mom's birthday. Okay. Roger. Forget it. Exactly. 
I remember when I found out Ronald Reagan was shot. I remember being in that school gymnasium. I remember when the Challenger exploded. I remember I was in the locker room at Kingwood High School. And so it's one of those things that if you were, you know, I had no idea, you know, living in Michigan at the time, okay, it erupted, great. You know, woohoo. All right. At 11 years old, I wasn't thinking about any of those things. But I want to give you a minute-by-minute breakdown from this A&E special here. At 8.32 a.m., one mile under Mount St. Helens, a 5.1 earthquake shakes the mountain. Did anyone feel that, by the way? No? Setting in motion a terrifying reaction, the eruption of Mount St. Helens. This earthquake, it rips the core of the mountain. Did you know that? It ripped the core of the mountain. Uh, Geologist Dorothy Stoffel was in an airplane over Mount St. Helens observing when it erupted. Did you know that? Yep. Now, there had been warnings in other earthquakes, and so, you know, they were clearing out the area and so on. Of course, not everybody abided by those rules. Um, In her words, Dorothy Soffel said, we began to see this enormous, enormous fracture open up. It was as though you were slicing the mountain in half. The whole north side of the mountain began to shake. Cran Kilpatrick of the U.S. Forest Service said, and he was there observing, and so on. Says seconds later, like a zipper from east to west, these little brown detonations, poof, 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 zipped right across the mountain. 25 seconds after the earthquake hit a huge explosion burst out from the north face of Mount St. Helens. Superheated gas shoots rock and ash more than 12 miles in the air. That's why you could see it. At 8.33 a.m., two more huge blasts of gas and rock shoot out as the northwest side of the mountain crumbles. The eruption covers a 230-square-mile area and dumps 2,000 feet of rubble into Spirit Lake. Above the mountain, Dorothy Stoffel looks behind her from the airplane to see the top of the mountain torn open by a force 500 times greater than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. She she says, and I quote, We saw this huge blast cloud lift up, and as it lifted up, there was lightning. Anyone see any lightning? There's a video of it. Tremendous lightning bolts going tens of thousands of feet high. Now, it's one thing for me to sit there and to uh, tell you these things, but it's another thing for you to actually see it. And so we have some videos. So David, cue up the first video called Archive Video, Mountains of Helens Eruption. We're going to watch the first 35 seconds of this video. been two strong earthquakes just before 8.32 a.m. on May 18th. The bulge could stand no more, and as it broke loose and thundered down the mountain, it did so with a speed that kept millions of tons of earth airborne for the first several hundred yards. Earth propelled by an explosive force equal to that. Okay, that's the first video. So we, just if you haven't seen this or 
bringing back memories. This just gives you a visual. The second video um, is called Mount St. Helens Eruption Footage and Photos. It's going to have a guy by the name of Keith Ronholm who was there. He took photos, and this is not too long. It's about 20 seconds worth of video. Show the next one. Now, this is a recreation of it, and this is with the, with the actual author, I think it's Keith Ronholm, and what he's saying, this is about almost a minute long, this video, and it gives you a better picture and color of, of what happened. Go to the next video. I glanced over at the mountain, and the entire north face was in motion, was sliding down. And it's, it's such an unbelievable view that I, I like shook my head and I said, am, am, am I really seeing this? But I dove for my camera and stood there and started taking pictures. And the very first picture shows the, the entire side of the mountain blowing out it was quiet, there was no sound. So there was no big explosion noise or, or anything that would make you want to run. And there's a reason why I'm showing these videos. 8.34 a.m., eight miles from the summit, photographer Reed Blackburn jumps into his car and guns it desperately trying to outrun the cloud of ash. So it's been two minutes since the eruption. It's too late. Um, in seconds, his car is engulfed and Blackburn is suffocated in four feet of scalding ash. The wind is so powerful that it uproots 100-foot trees as far as 19 miles away. The ash, hot enough to burn skin on contact, is surging down the mountain at a speed of 300 miles per hour. At 8.40 a.m., six minutes later, 13 miles away at the Green River campsite, I get a, you got to question this couple, why would Mike and Lou Moore take their two daughters to that campsite around Mount St. Helens? Well, they're hit by a shockwave. He, he says, we felt the squeezing of our bodies, a very tight squeezing, and my ears popped repeatedly. Soon after, ash begins to rain on the Moore family. They all survived and are fine, um, but that's a grace of God. At 8.55 a.m., the intense heat from the volcano melts the mountain ice, mountain's ice caps, sending 46 billion gallons of water into the Toodle Valley below. Mudslides heated to 91 degrees and moving at 91 miles per hour rush down the mountain. At 9.01 a.m., measurements indicate Mount St. Helens has erupted with a force of 10 megatons of TNT. A cloud of scorching ash mushroom now reaches 15 miles in the air. At 10.10 a.m., the ash cloud reaches Yakima. Did I say it? Yakima, Yakima? Yakima. Yakima. 
97 miles to the northeast. So roughly an hour and a half later, it's 97 miles to the northeast. At 12 p.m., the mountain has been erupting for three and a half hours, sending a total of 490 tons of ash hurling over an area nearly the size of West Virginia. At 2 p.m., 14 miles from the summit, the ash is so thick it is almost impossible to see the ground. At 5.30 p.m., now that the pressure from the volcano is relieved, the eruption gradually begins to subside. 200 square miles of forest have been destroyed. Heavy equipment, and you can see the pictures of this, it's just thrown around like it's toys. The Mount St. Helens eruption, here's some facts about this, released 24 megatons of thermal energy. The initial lateral blast, it traveled at about 220 miles per hour. However, the blast quickly accelerated to around 670 miles per hour and may have briefly passed the speed of sound. In the first six minutes, the blast leveled 3.2 billion board feet of prime forest. That's enough lumber to build 640,000 houses over an area in excess of 150 square miles. Part of the rockside debris catastrophically displaced the water of Spirit Lake, producing waves up to 850 feet high at the north shore of the lake. As the waters returned to its basin, it scoured slopes of trees and soil, and together with material from the initial eruption, produced a 320-foot-thick deposit on the bottom of the lake. The new level of Spirit Lake has been stabilized since August of 1982, so roughly two years later, by the Army Corps of Engineers, but at a new elevation, an elevation of 3,460 feet, 262 feet higher than its pre-eruption level. The total energy output during the subsequent nine-hour eruption was equivalent to 440 million tons of TNT, or approximately 33,000 Hiroshima atomic bombs. That's about one such atomic bomb exploding every second for nine hours. The, the force of the Mount St. Helens eruption spewed ash as far east as Minnesota and as far south as Oklahoma. In just over two weeks, the ash circled the entire globe. And in the end, the death toll of Mount St. Helens reached 57 people. This eruption remains the most devastating volcanic event in the history of the continental United States. And it's so apropos that I am preaching in Washington State because you were there and some of you are witnesses to this and lived through it. Here's the thing. <laughs> it wasn't the most powerful volcanic eruption of the, even of the 20th century. Did you know that? This happened 68 years earlier in the Alaskan Peninsula. June 6, 1912, Nova Some of you are shaking your heads, you know this, yeah. Nova exploded with cataclysmic force, 10 times greater than the eruption of Mount St. Helens. Great geysers of magma shot into the sky. Rivers of lava flowed into the valley, totaling 15 cubic kilometers of magma alone. Rivers of superheated gas and ash rushed into the valley below, 12 miles away, flattening lush floor forests 
and vaporizing trees, transforming it into the wide desert plain it is today. Here's a picture of this. I need to get the video done. I need to go back to the PowerPoint. While he's figuring that out, the natives that were there in this valley felt the earthquakes for, for a day or two or weeks prior to that. They knew something was up. They sensed it, and they all left. Okay? So they all left. So this is the picture of, I want to show you this. You can't see it. It's just, we don't have the best video quality. Right here, and obviously right here, is green lush forest, right? This is green lush forest. This was all lush forest. It came down and it immediately wiped all that out. And you can see it created these little canyons here too. See that? And that's today. That's today. Okay? So these two catastrophic events, Mount St. Helens explosion and Nova Rupta, uh, they just begin to paint, and I struggle with how to word this, it's a faint picture of what happened during the flood. So we're going to take a deeper dive into the worldwide flood as described in Genesis chapter 7. So get your Bibles out. Let's read Genesis chapter 7. You'll see how this all relates. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Verse 3, also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. And yeah, that's there, you need to realize why, because he's going to blot out everything. Verse 6, Now Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth and the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Don't forget that. The Lord closed it behind him. Verse 17, the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. 
the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heaven were covered. Under the heavens were covered. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher. That's 27 feet. And the mountains were covered. So 27 feet higher than the highest mountains. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now, before we get into the how, chapter 7 begins with a sobering message because it saddens me. And if you just read this and meditate on it and pray through it, you, you get sad, at least I did. That only eight people out of a conservative estimate of seven to 10 billion people who were alive at that time were found to be righteous. God's spirit was striving with them, meaning he was trying to bring people to repentance and no one was listening. They were rejecting him. Now, from our past studies, we know that the gospel message had been preached for 120 years by Noah. We know that there was a sacred culture that had worshipped the Lord during this time, from Seth. Of that line was Noah. And yet we arrive at a time when only eight people believe God. The other billions rejected him. In their grief, in the sadness our Lord must have felt is beyond our comprehension. Now, a simple outline of chapter 7 reveals this, because it's kind of, if you outline it, you'll understand the chapter better. In Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, it's a description of the seven days prior to the flood, okay? This is when God begins to bring the animals to Noah that are to be preserved. Animals, I mean birds and everything, Okay? Noah and his family and the chosen animals, they begin to enter the ark. In Genesis chapter 7, verses 10 through 12, is a description of how the earth was flooded by water. In Genesis 7, verses 13 through 16, it's a summary of verses 1 through 9, with one addition. At the end of the seventh day, before the flood, the Lord himself closed the door behind them. But why? Because, as the text says, that same day, the judgment of the flood begins. And in verses, chapter 7, verses 17 and 24, are simply the results of the flood. Now, what you notice when you read this is that it's very precise language. There are pairs of twos, right? And the sevens of animals, male and female, clean and unclean animals. How long it rained, 40 days and, and nights. Twice, Noah's age is mentioned. He's 600 years old. You have the month and the day of the month of the flood. The names of Noah's sons. The height at which the water rose above the mountains. Again, 15 cubits, which is 27 feet. The number of days the water prevailed upon the earth. I mean, you get the idea. It's very specific language. 
Well, why? First of all, it doesn't read like a, a myth or a legend, does it? It's boring reading in many ways. You know why? Because it's an historical account. It's an historical event. The second catastrophic event in the history of mankind. The first catastrophic event was the creation. Now we have the second catastrophic event, the flood. And just like I opened this sermon with a catastrophic event in our lifetime, the eruption of Mount St. Helens, what did I do? I referenced the date, names, and specific facts about the historical event. That's Genesis chapter 7. You see the point I'm making here? It's an historical event. And Moses is simply doing the same thing. Now, as I promised earlier, let's look at what I call the how of the flood. Look at verse 11. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, again, very specific language, now here we get to it, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. Stop right there. Again, what are the fountains of the great deep? Just refresh your memory. On the second day of creation, God separated the waters that enveloped the earth. He spoke everything into existence, and there was this matter inside the earth, and then it was just covered with water. And what God did is, you remember, he cut that circle around the water, and he expanded it, and he created the waters above, the heavens, and then the waters below. The earth was still covered by water. That's why we read in Genesis 1, 6, and 7 this. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, which is the heavens, and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. So there's waters above, and there's waters that are below. The waters below are referred to the fountains of the great deep in Proverbs 8.28. It says, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. So the waters below are the fountains of the great deep. And what, what did God do with that water? Well, they used to water the surface of the earth during the first society because there was no rain. Genesis 2, 5, and 6 says this. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. The Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. So it hadn't rained. We don't believe there was rain in that first society. It was a different earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground, but a, a spring or a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground, a completely different hydrological system or cycle. Now, the Hebrew for this phrase, um, fountains of the deep, it's called the great, the springs of the great abyss. It's the subterranean reservoirs, the continental springs, the geysers, the wells, the underground lakes, just a complex interconnected series of channels of water from which this massive amount of water down inside the earth would flow above and water uh, the trees and the plants and the shrubs and everything. But our text says, going back to Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, it burst open. The actual Hebrew word is B-A-Q-A. It's is the word, and it means, it means it divided or it burst. So it's a very accurate translation. 
you put all these verses together, we now understand that God created the earth with a tremendous amount of underground water. We also know that the earth has at, at its core what? Fire. Yep, fire. We see that fire coming out of volcanic eruptions. We just saw that, Mount St. Helens. And so what happened on, now here it is, the same day that Noah and his family and the animals entered the ark, hence why God personally closed that door. And he is personally involved, by the way, in a separate note, to make sure that his people don't suffer his wrath. Okay? On the same day Noah and his family and the animals entered the ark, by God's design, the core of the earth began to heat the underground water and volcanic eruptions started to happen all over the planet. These volcanic eruptions alter the planet on a global scale, far beyond the eruption of Mount St. Helens. The power released at this time, uh, I think, would be beyond calculation. In short, God began to heat the planet until it exploded. At the same time, as it became hotter and hotter, there was a pressure built up that literally blew the surface of the earth open. The core of the earth was blown open. And I can imagine the force of that explosion. This resulted, folks, in the continents pushing the mountains up and causing the seabeds to drop into the chasms where the water was vacated. Explosions of subterranean magma and steam from volcanoes in the ripped open surface of the earth changed the face of the earth and set the heated water loose. Now, we believe the earth looks something like this pre-flood. Remember this from a previous sermon called the Pangaea? And here we have the, it was one big connected continent. This is the existing atmosphere. And then this is the, the water can't, water vapor canopy, which you call the water that was above. The water below and here and the water above. And they said this, the theory is there's a water vapor canopy that this time was surrounding the planet, which is why it can't create like a greenhouse effect and everything was protected from some radiation and people lived so long and all that. I don't want to go into all that. But that's what we believe that the uh, earth looked like before the flood. It looked like this after the flood. Remember this? And you can see how you can kind of puzzle everything and put it together. Let's put all this over here, bring it all in. This is what the world we live in now. Again, it was this to this. Now, there is a reason why the Bible lists the fountains of the great deep as happening first. Because that triggers what happens next. Verse 11 says, And the floodgates of the sky were opened, verse 12, the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The rapid buildup of heat from the earth's core causes an explosion that sends, you know, we saw it, water along with dust and ash and particles of magma high into the sky. I think. I think it's safe to assume it went higher than 15 miles into the sky, into that atmosphere. This seismic explosion of the earth 
sends all this matter into the sky. Now remember that the Mount St. Helens explosion sent debris 15 miles up into the sky. This explosion was far more powerful. It sent dust and ash and magma so high that it creates turbulence with its combination of material and gases. And there's lightning, I believe. They probably never had lightning before, saw it. Now they're seeing lightning, right? And that, along with the, the force of the magma, it pierces this water canopy. It bursts the water canopy above the earth. This canopy of water is called the floodgates of the sky. And it begins to fall down upon the earth. Now, interestingly enough, the word floodgates is translated windows or sluice gate. Does anyone know what a sluice gate is? I heard it before. I didn't know what it looked like. So here's what a sluice gate looks like. So this is like, obviously, if there's this lake here, let's say it's what it is, a river. And it's obviously controlled and coming down through here. If you lift this sluice gate up, what happens? It's all going to come out. So that's the picture in your mind I want you to see. The floodgates, the sluice gate of heaven was opened. So we have the change in the atmosphere from the core of the earth exploding, it creating clouds filled with moisture. And the release of the water from above produces rain, something we believe the first society had never experienced. Now, what kind of rain was it? Well, one thing you can be sure of, it was not a Pacific Northwest rain. A slow, drizzling rain. I have more videos to show you what it looked like. Frank, do we get all three of them ready? Okay, here's the first video. This is a driver in Ontario, Canada, um, of June 1st of last year, uh, driving through a torrential downpour. It's only like 10 seconds of this video, but look what he is driving, he or she's driving through. You can't see, I've driven through stuff like that before, not here, but in the Midwest where we get all this rain, right? This next video is, um, it's called a microburst. Anyone ever been through a microburst? I have. My wife, I was in my office, my wife was out, I think it was Mark in the car driving in a microburst. What happened was, I remember watching the Weather Channel at the time, the, the, the Weather Channel guy said he was praying and was concerned for the people of Bowling Green because it was just this perfect environment. Everything settled right over Bowling Green, and a microburst happened. There was wind with it, and it was just this deluge of, of water, a very short but just this massive amount of water. You were caught outside or in the car. You had to make it from the garage to the house with Mark with that rain. Yeah. I drove out later in the day, and the, the pine trees, which were small in the Bowling Green Bowling Green's very flat. The pine trees, like dozens of them, were blown over in the golf course. This is a microburst. It's 24 seconds from August 9th, 2015, of Tucson, Arizona, of a microburst. Put this video up. It's not, why? It's not, not even it. See, it does dump now. Look at that dumping.
That's a microburst. Okay? Now, this is the one that I didn't realize is a pain to download, but we end up not being able to do it, but we do have it. We're just going to show the first 10 seconds of this. You can actually play this and go to sleep to this. This is what this is. But this next video is, yeah, let's listen to this. That, what I believe, and it's what the text says is happened. Now that, anyone ever, again, anyone ever experienced something like that? If you're in the Midwest, you have. I, again, I remember I told you that Lydia and David and I went to Cedar Point last summer. And they, they, they never closed the park, really. It was when they were closing the park during the middle of the day, like, this must be bad, and I checked my phone. And we thought, okay, well, we'll ride it out, and, and so on. And so we then made it to the, an umbrella by a, a restaurant, and we were sitting there, and it just opened up like this. Um, and it, we were just getting soaked. It was just toast. The umbrella was just toast. We were able to sprint to the, a, a restaurant, and it rained so, uh, what, 10, 20 minutes like that, you couldn't see anything. That type of rain, if you're out in it, it hurts. It hurts. And it, it immediately f flooded the, it was too much overwhelmed the drain system at Cedar Point. And they ended up, I think, close it down for the day. There was feet of water in a short amount of time that that happened. That heavy rain happened 40 days and 40 nights, and that's rain from above. That's just the rain from above. Now, the word for rain, typically in Hebrew in the Old Testament, is matar, M-A-T-A-R. It means normal rain, like we experience now. You can call it Pacific Northwest rain, would be included in that. It doesn't mean a torrential downpour. But if you have it for 40 days and 40 nights all over the planet, then it becomes something far greater than normal rain. And that's why in verse 12, you see it says the word, the rain. It doesn't use the word matar. It uses a different word called geshem, G-E-S-H-E-M. And it means a torrential downpour, a shower. Okay, everywhere else it's used, it's just this heavy torrential downpour. So it began briefly like normal rain, only to the billions of people on the planet, it is something entirely new. I can imagine the people looking up in curiosity as to this water falling from the sky. But when the rain falling from the sky quickly picks up in intensity, and it doesn't stop for days. Has anyone ever been through that much heavy rain for longer than an hour? Experience that. Okay. But that's what, two, three, four hours, five hours at the most? Yeah. A day's worth of that. No. So we, we, we can't even relate to it. I'm trying to help us to relate to it just by seeing these videos and these pictures. So I want you to think that you're someone in the first society, and this rain is falling from the sky, and it's picking up in intensity, and it doesn't stop for days, and it's now combined with the water that's released from below. And it eventually reaches your ankles and then your knees, and panic sets in. And for those who heard the warnings of Noah, a fearful realization sets in that they're under the judgment of God and will die by this flood of water. Now take courage. 
This is an FYI to all of us. Such a rain covering the entire earth, it's completely impossible under our current water cycle, our current conditions. The water available above the earth could never create the kind of rain that it created in Noah's day. This is one of the reasons why we know that the water cycle of Noah's day was very different than today. It couldn't rain all over the earth for 40 days and 40 nights now because there's just not enough moisture in the clouds to rain. Now, keep this in mind, folks. What I've just shown you in the eruption of Mount St. Helens and in these, these videos of torrential rain, this all happened in one day. And this, the eruptions are taking place. The water's coming up. Okay, and then it continues for 40 days. And can you imagine what that initial day was like? And we have a date. <laughs> the second month, the 17th day, we don't know the actual date because they don't know what calendar they used because it was all blotted out. Was it 360 days a year or 365 days a year? We don't know. But we do know this. It's repeated. It happened on that same day. The same day they went in the ark, it happened. The same day, the same day, the same day. This water's coming down, and this water's coming up. So in review, you had all the subterranean water rising up from the heated core of the earth that had ripped open the planet. You have the forming of continents. That's happening, by the way. It's pushing up. They're separating. Mountains are coming up. Valleys are being created. Water is sinking down and also rising. The forming of the continents that we now know were formed, began to be formed that same day that they stepped into the ark. Mountains rise up, valleys are formed. The water canopy, the waters that are above, that's the theory, is broken up, which changes, by the way, the protective greenhouse environment in which the earth had existed. For 40 days and 40 nights, a deluge of water pours down from above, and the water from below gushes upward filling up the sunken places, what we now know as oceans. The water rises high enough to cover Mount Ararat, which is a chain of mountains, and other mountains that are close to 17 to 20,000 feet in elevation. And of course, it rises 27 feet above all of that. Polar ice caps were created quickly, freezing the drowned animals. Now, if there ever was a catastrophic event, folks, this was it. And there's so much more we could say we are out of time. I'll pick it up next week. But all of this happened because of the sin of mankind. And this is the lesson of this event, that God judges sin. And his judgment is severe. But here is the key point. This is the last thing I'm going to say. His judgment is so severe that God knows that he has to bear that judgment for us. And that's the whole reason, really, for the cross. And so it's, a, it's an interesting sermon, right? But it also kind of leaves you a little heavy because it's, it's, it's a, this is the judgment that happened because of, of sin. The next judgment came in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the final judgment comes when the earth will be destroyed by fire, Peter tells us, at his second coming. 
And so I, I thought, you know, what are we going to, how do you end this sermon? What do you, well, I just want you to do this. I want you to ponder the judgment of God. I've never asked that before, but this is something I think that we should do. Think about this flood. Think about why it happened and, and how it happened and everything. And now you've got some reference videos you can watch to give you a, a fraction of a picture because it just paints a faint picture of what happened on that day. I mean, our God is, you know, what's left, the scriptures say, but a fearful expectation of the judgment of God. And so, thank you, Lord, as we close our eyes and as we pray this morning and as we sing this last song. Thank you, Father, that you bear that severe judgment yourself. That we're not destined to wrath. Indeed, we're destined to glory. And all God's people said, Amen.